I'm Ben. And I'm Oliver. Welcome back to the Orange Podcast. Today we have a fascinating guest on our podcast. He's a trained medical doctor pursuing his passion in synthetic biology and artificial intelligence. His team has pioneered the world's first biohybrid computing platform, demonstrating they can teach human brain cells in a dish to play the video game Pong. This has gained, obviously, worldwide media attention. Welcome, Hon Wang Chong, founder and CEO of Cortical Labs. Thanks for coming. Thanks for having me. Lovely to have you on the podcast, Hon. So I suppose, like, we'll start by just, you know, getting a bit of an introduction about who you are and what you're working on. Sure. Um, so, as you heard, uh, my name is um, Hon Wang Chong. I'm a... Uh, the uh, CEO and founder of Cortical Labs uh, was actually a medical doctor before going on in a uh, startup journey and uh, also a fellow alumni of uh, Melbourne Uni. So it's always good to be back. Uh, uh, they didn't have this Melbourne Connect building when I was uh, training and um, it's really cool to, to be in here and seeing all these uh, cool facilities uh, up and running. Um, let's see, where shall I start? I suppose like t- tell us maybe... A bit about cortical labs like what do you actually do there ah yes okay what do i do there or what does the company do those are two different <laughs> what does things. the company do we'll start with that okay so um cortical labs is a um deep tech startup that was founded in 2019 um with the goal of trying to build a biological computer um the inspiration for that really was the observation that um there's you know a, a race to build AGI, artificial generalized intelligence. And, you know, the leader in the space back in 2018, 2019 was DeepMind, you know, using techniques such as reinforcement learning through uh, demonstrations such as AlphaGo, where they trained an RL agent to defeat Lee Seedold. So that was the first time we solved the game of Go. Technically, we didn't really solve it, but we figured out a hack to actually uh, make a computer play better than a human. And, uh, you know, OpenAI today, you know, is the leader when it comes to the AGI space, particularly with the use of large language models such as ChatGPT. Um, but our approach is slightly different. The way we've done it is by saying, um, look, you know, the only truly generalized intelligence that we know of are biological in nature. You know, things like a, you and I, a dog or a cat or an octopus have very, very interesting properties, such as the ability to model the world, um, to operate in it, um, uh, avoid being, uh, being prey, you know, finding food of your predator and so forth. Um, you know, the, the physical space and the operation in real time are actually really impressive um, feats of intelligence. And um, if you look at it, what do all these uh, organisms have in common? They all have a nervous system. Some of them have a centralized, some of them have decentralized, but they all have a nervous system made out of neurons. And so based on that theory, we said, well, if the neuron is the basic building block of these biological intelligent systems, um, could we harness these neurons um, to do some computational intelligence for us? And all of this was kind of uh, started out when, uh, you know, I had a previous startup before Cortical Labs called ClinicCloud. And uh, in the twilight years of ClinicCloud, I was really interested in artificial intelligence. And I had been working on machine learning way back when I was even a med student um, doing my elective at Johns Hopkins when uh, I, uh, I still remember when I was a, a research student. I had a really fun project was um, looking at the use of um, 
video games and VR uh, as non-pharmacological adjuncts for the treatment of pain, depression, anxiety, and hospitalized kids. And my um, uh, colleague at that time came back and, you know, I was like, hey, where'd you go? He's like, oh, I went for a lecture. And I was like, what is it on? He said, machine learning. I was like, as if machines can learn. Mind you, this was way back in 2000, 2008, 2009. So anyway, that was my first introduction to it. I was really interested in 2018, 2017, and the hype at that point in time was convolution neural networks. So image recognition uh, neural nets. Um, the issue with those neural nets were, was the fact that you were only as good as the data that you were training them on. And no one had more data than the big tech companies. So Facebook, Google, Microsoft, so forth. Um, and so it was only a matter of time before, you know, if you got really good at what you were doing, that you'd be subsumed and consumed by, you know, these big tech firms. And we're really starting to see this now with the large language model like AI wrappers, you know. So a lot of companies are now being uh, eaten by ChatGPT, uh, by OpenAI. So anyway, having a look at this, I was like, well, I don't want to do another convolution or X startup. Um, and came across a paper written by Demis Sabas, uh, who's the founder of DeepMind, where he called for um, the greater sort of engagement of the machine learning AI community with neuroscience, because that's where all the initial discoveries were made. So I did exactly that. I took, uh, took that advice, went to the Flory, and I spoke to the researchers there and said, hey, what's going on in this space? You know, um, what's exciting? And they were like, yeah, we got this device, this multi-electrode array that can read and write to biological neurons. And I was like, wait, you have input output. Why hasn't anyone tried to do compute or program them? So that's the, that was the, the start of, of cortical labs. But anyway, so long story short, what we do is we take neurons and we play them on a computing chip. And because neurons communicate with one another using electrical activity, uh, we can read that activity and we can also provide them with a stimulus. And we couple that with a computer program uh, which takes the output of the neurons and, and um, moves the paddle in the game of Pong. Uh, it can be anything, actually, any simulation, as long as there is what we call a structured information landscape, i.e. that there are rules that how signals are generated and given to the neurons um, that are affected by the, um, the uh, actions of the, of the neurons. So... Um, you know, what we do, we, we take the outputs, put it into the game, moves the paddle, we then feed the information of where the ball is to the paddle back to the neurons, and we do it over and over. And we reward the neurons so if they hit the paddle, and we uh, punish them or disincentivize them when they miss the paddle. And if you do this over and over, uh, over five minutes and, you know, with multiple samples, you show, we can show that there is a learning effect in the sense that they move the paddle um, greater or with, with more accuracy over time to keep the, the game in play. Fascinating. So you're Rick Sanchez. Kind of. Rick and Morty. Well, I'm not really. <laughs> uh, Brett is the Rick. I'm just, who am I? No, there's no, there's no equivalence. Maybe I'm just Morty. Maybe I'm along for the ride. <laughs> Participating. Fascinating. Do you think there is something intrinsic about human neurons that allows them to learn in a better, more efficient way than a traditional neural network? Oh, yeah. I mean, if you think about it, nature is really good um, at selecting for um, very fast uh, neurons. Well, I mean, they're relatively slow, but in terms of processing, they're really fast um, and, and power efficiency. Because if you think about it, um, in, when it comes to energy uh, and power efficiency, 
you can't consume more energy or more calories than you can eat or you can hunt or you can forage. So that's really a natural cap. And, you know, you either A, get more food, which, you know, is hard if you're a hunter-gatherer, or you become more efficient in how you use your energy. So neurons are A, very good at that. But secondarily as well, in terms of processing speed, neurons have to be really fast at, at predicting ahead of time what's going to happen. If you think about it, if you were, say, a hunter-gatherer in the savannah, and it took you the same amount of time as an artificial neural network to process, if there was a tiger in the reeds, i.e., you know, you needed like 2,000 samples and you're sampling at, say, 60 frames per second, uh, you'd be lunch by then, right? And so we have this very um, good ability to predict ahead of time to process hypotheticals uh, in order to survive uh, and to reproduce. So natural selection really does select for those two um, features that we think are what makes neurons, biological neurons, and maybe humans in, in that case, uh, superior to, to artificial neural networks. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm interested by this because I suppose like the neurons themselves can signal very fast, mm-hmm. but their ability to adapt in you know, evolutionary ways would be surely slower than that of a computer because you can run multiple tests in parallel with a computer. Correct. So how you were mentioning like that you're, you're essentially training and rewarding or mm. you know, disincentivizing mm. the neurons in a dish. Mm. How does that work and how does that feedback then lead to the next progeny that responds in a more so, acceptable manner? So with a computer, you, you have to bear in mind as well that all these simulations that they're running are actually running ahead of time and at accelerated speed. Mm. Um, they, they, they kind of break down the moment you have to do it in a robot or something like that where the, the clock is ticking at the same rate that we are at. So that's, that's one thing to bear in mind. When we do our research and we look at the results, those are all in real time as opposed to simulated time. Um, so, um, you know, that, that's one thing um, that, that I think needs to be uh, thought about. But the, the way the rewards, the, the, you know, the incentives and disincentives, disincentives work is based on a theory that's been developed by Professor Carl Friston um, at UCL. Mind you, we're not wedded to any one theory. It just seems to be the best one that explains our observations at the moment, which posits that all biological systems, um, you know, uh, particularly intelligent uh, brains and so forth, are what are known as Bayesian generative machines. We generate hypotheses about the world ahead of time. So right now, you and I, our brains are making predictions about what the world is and how come, you know, uh, time right now, we don't realize it or we don't actually even compute most of them because we have very good, strong priors about what the world is. For instance, you and I were not computing uh, whether this bottle in front of us, you know, is going to float because we have this, we have this thing called gravity. Uh, and so, you know, if the, if the brain is generating these, these hypotheses, right, it has to then be backed up by observation. So uh, if you think about the traditional neuroscience way of thinking is you have a photon hits the back of your retina, retina then transmits information to the, to the you know, uh, visual cortex, goes to the you know, prefrontal and then motor function happens or something like that. So it's this whole receptive loop. The new thinking in, in, in proposed cognitive neuroscience is that it's ahead of time. So we are predicting ahead of time what's happening then our observations 
So the photon is hitting our retina, and then that is being compared against what the hypothesis is and what we're observing. And mostly, if we've got a very good model of the world, that's a usually one-to-one -one kind of correspondence. But if there isn't, then we have what's called information surprise. So now that we know that if the brain is trying, what the brain is trying to do is get very good predictions of what the world is, um, we can try to manipulate the neurons, i.e. like if they miss the ball, that's a bad thing. So we should be making the world more unpredictable. So we do that by infusing information in the form of white noise because, you know, there's this thing called information entropy and white noise has the highest amount of entropy because you, it's unpredictable. You cannot predict n number of sequences based from, you know, an observed sequence. On the flip side, if you do do a good thing, we stimulate using a very predictable stimulus. So a predictable stimulus could be something like a sine wave because if you think of a sine wave, if you hit on one period, you'll know n number of periods going forward. So that's a way we, we increase or decrease the overall entropy of the system from an information uh, theoretic point of view. So you've got these neurons that are sitting on a, like a bioarray sensor. What, what, how would you sort of put yeah, it? Yeah, so some of them are CMOS-based chips, so cobalt metal oxide um, sensors, so the same thing as your, your digital cameras. Some of them are sitting on glass chips where they just have, uh, you know, uh, electrodes etched into the glass kind of thing. Mm. Um, and, um, yeah, they pick up the signal, and we can also reverse and provide a stimulus back. Interesting. Yep. So they're sitting on this chip, and then... When they miss the paddle, you reward them. Also, you you punish them with entropy. Correct. And then when they hit hit the paddle on the on, on the right on the right spot, yep. you reward them with predictability. Correct. How, like what what about the neuron? That's just a fascinating. It's, idea. it's almost like the, the neuron has a personality, <laughs> yeah. And the neuron is responding to yeah clean clean predictable data. Correct. Versus something that is. Probably just overloading the system. Yeah. But, but so what about the neuron likes the predictability? Like how does the neuron respond to the predictability? By readjusting its, its, its outputs. Because it's not, a, it's not one neuron. It's the network of neurons. And they all have to coordinate amongst themselves. Okay. Right? So because the way we do it is we, we encode information where the ball is to the paddle in an X and Y axis um, kind of way. So X axis is usually in the form of a rate encoding scheme and y-axis is in place encoding and we, we stimulate certain regions on the chip with you know certain groups and populations of neurons but those neurons are also connected to neurons that are on the motor regions that we then use to move the paddle up and down so they're all talking to each other really um and when they miss the whole system gets you know given that signal or when they when they hit the whole system gets given the reward kind of thing so they're all trying to coordinate amongst themselves to get to that better predictability. So how long does that take for it to receive the information and act differently? So about five minutes. We see a statistical, strong statistical significance in the difference in the rate of return. Um, we, we, so there are two measures in the paper that we looked at, which is um, the average rally length, how long can these neurons keep the ball in play? You know, if it's single player pong, that's the objective, right? Don't miss the ball. Um, and then the other one is the number of aces. So how long, sorry, not how long, is how many times does it miss the ball the first time round? Which, you know, if you have lower number of aces, it means you're able to intercept it uh, in the first go. And we both, and we show that the, um, with the right sort of training regime, they improve the return rate um, and also the number of aces. Okay. 
Yep. Fascinating. <laughs> now, in a traditional sort of machine learning sense, you would shift the uh, you know weights and biases mm. in such a way that you predictably know is going to increase the likelihood that the output is going to match the predicted or sort of the expected output. Correct. But the neuron doesn't really have that. So you just sort of reward it and it adjusts itself accordingly. Is, is that sort of the... Yeah. The, okay. Yeah. Because if you, if you think about it, so in traditional machine learning, um, the, the improvement comes from the back propagation that happens to the signal. Um, where you have gradient descent and you know the, the, the network updates itself in the next forward pass to get a better result. Mm-hmm. Um, in the biological system, there is a question of how they're doing it. We're not quite sure the exact mechanism. Um, but you know, mathematically it makes sense in, in, in the form of, of having what, what are known as Markov blankets, so differentials in states between the observed world and the internal states of the neurons. There must be something that they are computing internally that is trying to reflect the observed world on the other side of the Markov blanket. Mm-hmm. Just like they're just intrinsically performing some form of gradient descent without us having to program it in. Is that what you're I, saying? I don't even think they're doing gradient descent. They're doing something. They're doing some sort of ahead of time uh, improvement or movement or or, or change of their internal weighting structures. Fascinating. Okay. I don't quite understand it all. (laughs) Yeah, I I don't think we, I don't think we, we we do either. And and all of these will take time to, you know, start thinking about how do we do better experiments and, you know, delving deeper into it. And I think this is really just the first step of us saying, hey, look, there is a very interesting observation here. You know, is it by chance? No, it's not by chance. Then if it's not by chance, then what is happening? No doubt it's interesting. Yeah. I suppose from a from a pragmatic standpoint, you yep. know, you've got cells that are playing Pong. Yeah. What's the what's the utility long term for something like that? Well, if you think about it, we, we meant to train it to do something. What else can we train it to do? That's the big open question. Mm-hmm. Um and, and this is something my team is trying to work on at the moment. Well not not specifically work on it, but trying to figure out is there a way for us to program, sort of build tools that will allow us to program these neurons much quicker and easier um, so that we can open it up to other people to start experimenting with this stuff? Internally, we'll be doing our own experiments, but you know, I think that um, we're limited by how much exposure and creativity that we have. Um, you know, we're, we're pretty much mostly you know, neuroscientists, stem cell biologists, um, some engineers, right? But there, are, there might be people out there with better or more interesting problems to solve. So... Um, you know, that's, that's, if we go back, you know, we can program and do more than just Pong. Internally, we've done the jumping dinosaur game um, from Chrome. The question that becomes is, what else can you get it to do? Um, And especially if you can model real world scenarios using simulation programs that you feed information from the outside world with actuators out into the real world, you now have an ability to train these neurons to perform um, intelligence in a real world setting through avatars like robots or through digital avatars and, and so forth. So, you know, it does open a lot of possibilities for real time intelligence. So, you want to be the open AI of biological computing? Would that be a fair? Pretty much. Yeah. Pretty much. Or actually, the closest thing would be like the NVIDIA. Or the Intel, right? True. Yeah. We, 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 would, we would love if there was an open AI. It wouldn't be us, but hopefully somebody else would build on top of this kind of technology. Mm-hmm. Um, somebody's got to 
you know, do the hard yards of building the hardware and growing the neurons, right? And I think the the in the current boom at the moment, the um, often unheard of uh, company is NVIDIA, right? Because they're the ones that are powering everything, including BARD, Google, and um, what is it? ChatGPT from OpenAI to what is it? The Llama 2s that are, you know, being trained by, by Facebook. Mm. Perhaps one day the AI itself will utilize your technology to build a symbiotic human slash robot. Who knows? Who knows? I mean, maybe there are there are there are there are strengths and weaknesses, right, for both of these technologies. Now, the re- the reason why I can I, I say that is that so is let's put it in a different. If we take a step back and we think about it, um, our current AIs are so good at doing stuff because a we've spent a lot of energy doing it, um, and also a lot of data. Um, they're naturally very good at computation. So discrete deterministic like uh, high precision uh, math problems. Um, on the flip side, we, you know, humans are, are really good at doing sort of like intelligence problems with very low energy, but we spend a lot of energy if you give us a very big math problem to solve. Uh, suffice to say, what I'm, what I'm trying to get here is that if you, if you expend enough energy, you can get either systems to do things that they're outside of their comfort and, and, and specialty. And, and this is how we've gotten our current AIs to work so well, which is you know, a significant amount of energy has been spent along with data to train these systems. Now, the question is, is that, is that a sustainable thing? I, I think it's gonna be hard to, to continuously justify you know, data centers spending all that energy doing prompts and, and so forth. Mm, okay. So, do you think there are applications for biological com- computing that will perform better on you know, biological, synthetic biology computer interface rather than um, a traditional sort of silicon chip? Yeah, so um, if so, we have a paper um, that's currently under review, but it was actually a poster at NIPS last year. And um, um, in that paper, we did a head-to-head comparison against three reinforcement learning agents, A2C, PPO, and DQN. And uh, we gave them the same game that we had our neurons play. And it turns out that it, in order to achieve the same level of, of performance, the reinforcement learning agents had to require a significant amount of samples. Um, I.e., if you were to, say, play back the samples at a fixed rate of 100 frames per second, it would be in the order of hours of gameplay required as opposed to five minutes that we had. So if you think about it from that perspective, the applications where this would benefit the most would be real-time applications, things like robotics, things like cars, things like stock trading and so forth could benefit from something like this. Um, you know, energy efficiency as well is one of those things, right? We, we know based on just back calculation, back solving for how much... Um, uh, cell culture media we use and how much of the concentration of that is made of glucose, that the neurons for 800,000 to a million neurons consume about 10 to the minus 4, minus 5 watts of energy. So that's a significant amount of energy saving, particularly really useful if your goal is to have something that needs a long time out in the field without needing to plug into the grid. So those are the two things that I think would be very like useful or two properties that would help with these things, particularly robotics um, and cybersecurity. But on the flip side, it's biological, 
right? And we've gotten it to do some sort of computation, some sort of intelligence, which is the, the, the functionality um, of what a brain is. It's a functional component, a functional aspect of the brain. If you are able to do this in a glass chip with neurons on the outside of the body that have been taken from patients or from people or whatever, because we grow them from human-derived uh, adult pluripotent stem cells, you now theoretically have a, a, a model and ability to test for drugs, test for conditions um, outside of the human body. Wow. So what's going through my mind at the moment is that in, a, you know, in, in vivo in the human body, mm-hmm. when you know, signals are sent to the brain and the brain responds, signals are, I suppose, propagated and sent through the brain using electrical signaling as well as chemicals that influence the way that the brain operates. Yes. So in that sense, how would you kind of mimic that chemical response that influences the brain's activity? Um, So if you grow these neurons, right, from, say, uh, stem cells, the stem cells do secrete their own uh, neurotransmitters. the, the question is, you know, what are the right proportions? You know, how much excitatory, how much inhibitory, unique so on and so forth. Well, our work shows that, you know, there is a, a good proportion that you should be aiming for. And also glia is really important. So you, you, we can theoretically grow a brain from, from adult pluripotent stem cells. And people are doing that with organoids, like mini, mini brain structures. Um, and they, they have some very interesting, like, sort of firing patterns and so forth. Um, so, yeah, you can actually just recreate a lot of that in a, in a dish. Um, the question then becomes, how do you test for their functionality? And, you know, it's easier with the other organs. So, for instance, you know, if you grow a cardiac organoid, you just see a beat. You can measure contractility for muscle. Uh, kidneys, you just measure filtration rate. What does the brain do? And one of the problems is that we've been measuring spiking activity, you know, how many spikes is happening uh, with these neurons. The problem with spikes is that they don't really tell us anything besides, hey, a message was being sent. And we know for a fact now that, you know, not necessarily the more spikes you send, the better they are. It's a analogy that I make, which is that um, if you could be in, say, the MCG and you're listening to, sorry, you're in the MCG and you're trying to listen to stuff, but you can't because there's so much noise, right? So you have a lot of noise activity, but not much transmission of information. On the other hand, you could be in a lecture theater um, and you'd have only one person speaking, but the amount of information being transferred is significantly higher, uh, even though it's only just one person speaking. So measuring for spikes isn't, I think, the end all and be all on how we, we figure out what functionality of the, these neural organoids are. The way we, func- we, we, we measure that functionality is by putting them into game worlds and testing them. You know, you, you, you put them in a baseline Pong world, see what they do, and then you start squirting drugs and see what happens. Improvement, you know, uh, decline. And then on top of that, what's really interesting is you can start thinking about CRISPRing conditions and could you CRISPR, you know, a sort of known familial dementia and get a dementia model. And then from there, test your drugs on that. Mm-hmm. I think you know that that is the the most exciting part of of um, of this new synthetic biology wave. And you know the other really interesting fact is that you know um, 
particularly with any drug that crosses the the blood-brain barrier, anything that has any CNS sort of like effect, um, there is a significant amount of unknown when it comes to the cognitive side effects of these uh, medications. So things like antipsychotics, uh, anti-epileptics, depressants, even chemotherapy. One of the main reasons people discontinue from these drugs is because of the fact that they they have brain fog and that the treatment is worse than the condition, and so they discontinue it. Uh, now, it wouldn't be great if we could figure out what what you know what the brain fog effect was like before we gave it to the patient. If we could take some of their own blood and turn them into stem cells into brains from there, and then test the drugs in those things, that would say, okay, so there are six different antipsychotics. We've tested all six, and candidate number four gives you the best result with the minimal amount of side effect. Right. Okay. That's that's personalized medicine in a nutshell. Yeah, I mean, it's it's got a lot of utility in the research space. Certainly, there's no doubt. And clinical as well. Hopefully, um, once you know we're able to prove that that strong in vitro in vivo sort of uh, correlation. Okay. So you take differentiated cells, you induce them to become pluripotent, then you take them down the neur- the sort of neural pathway. Yep. You turn them into neurons, and then you insert you know some high risk gene for alzheimer's mm-hmm. using crispr mm-hmm. then you get it to play like a memory game and oh, you squirt oh, something some and yeah it gets to play or something yeah and, and once you, you measure its output exactly and okay. once you once you, if you can show that they actually like have a decline over time you now have a model that's so fascinating so then you just take the all the compounds and drugs that you have and just try them one by one and see what happens maybe you'll find one that just stops it or reverses it I remember learning about organoids a couple of years ago, and I was very much sort of fascinated by the idea that you could have sort of much better models of disease states than yeah. traditional cells. Yeah. But then I never considered what a poor model of uh, like, what a poor model an organoid is of the brain. Like, how do you measure the effect of, of a drug on a brain organoid? Like, how do you know what the brain is experiencing? Well, exactly. I suppose this is the way, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, so this is one of the insights that we've made over this time, just observing it and, and experimenting with it, um, is that, yeah, we, we started to, to, to realize that we might have an in vitro cognitive testing system on our hands. Such a brilliant idea. I, I, I'm, I'm curious, like, surely, you know, you've got a lot of traction from this, just meeting new people. Who are some of the people that you've met because of the project you're working on? What some of the people we've like met? Like notable people. People you mean, you're like, wow. I think you met this, the, the Amazon CTO. Yeah, Amazon? yeah. So yeah. Herman, Herman Hauser came down to our lab uh, the start of this year and uh, he had a chat. He had a look at what we were doing and uh, was quite interested. So um, that was a good one. Uh, I've met some really interesting people along the way. So um, um, Dr. Herman Hauser. He uh, is actually the chairperson of BitBio, which is a company that we work quite closely with. They do a lot of CRISPR stem cell lines. Um, um, he's the founder of ARM. So, yes. yeah, he, he, he's, a, he's also a well-known VC uh, venture capitalist in Europe. Um, but, yeah, you know, there's a whole bunch of really interesting people who I've met. It's, it's hard to remember. There's a bunch of them. I met Demis Osabis, um, who's the founder of DeepMind. Oh, yeah. Right. Yeah. Really interesting, you know, discussion. I was actually just um, at this Brain Mind Summit about uh, three, three, four weeks ago in San Francisco, and I, I caught up with, with uh, Tom Oxley. He's the founder of Synchron, um, Stentro, local Melbourneian, but 
you know, really proud to see, um, you know, an Australian company beating Elon to the first, uh, what is it, uh, human trials for BCI. Um, And also Reid Hoffman was there as well. So, you know, had a chat with him. But Reid was more interested in the AI aspect of things uh, because he does have an AI startup at the moment. The is it hey hey pie or uh pie yeah yeah pie. Yep. yeah such a small world wow absolutely yeah <laughs> all right well I, I kind of you know we'll, we'll go into your story and your background a little bit more but I was curious about the sort of energy savings that you mentioned with um, sort of biological computing as opposed to a, a traditional silicon chip can you can you sort of go over that again what was a like what's the percentage savings on on energy for specific tasks and how does that work so i mean it's a not it's a indirect measure as well i mean we need to do more work around this like formalized calorimetric testing and and so forth um the the way the way i did it was essentially um back solving so what we we usually do with these nuances we do a regular cell culture media change out every 24 to 48 hours that's like a 50 percent removal of the fluid and replacement that's about like i think 10 mils of of cell culture media um so if you know what 10 mils so what kind of solution you use with 10 mils and you know what the uh what what the osmolarity of the glucose concentration is you can back off for how many moles you have and then you can do the combustion and you can figure out how much energy is in is actually in there. So this is assuming a 100% combustion of, of glucose, you know, in that period of time, which is already an overestimation. It's probably closer to 10 minus 6 minus 7 watts of energy, um, you know, if we were to actually really um, do a proper calorimetric testing. Um, so so that's how we, we work it up. Now, the comparison for that would probably, the closest thing would be like a, a solar, solar pocket calculator. Now. A lot of people go, well, I can train Pong on my GPU to do all these things. I was like, yes, you can, but can you do it on a solar-powered calculator? That, I think, is the, is the true measure of, of the efficiency of a system like this. And, you know, the other side effect is that they don't heat up, which is great because the vast majority of um, the energy consumption actually is not just in the training, um, but it's actually in the cooling of the system. Um, you know, these GPUs produce a significant amount of heat, and it has to go somewhere. And then you were also mentioning sort of real-time applications like robotics mm-hmm. and self-driving cars. I suppose, if, if I have this right, are you saying that these neurons can learn in real-time, whereas traditional machine learning methods require you to collect a bunch of data and then train a new model on GPU clusters? Is that... Pretty much. Yeah. Yeah, you can do that. And if you think about it, ChatGPT only got so good because it read the entirety of the internet, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we're never going to be as good as ChatGPT, right? Because it's read everything. But to get to some level of actually being a pretty good large language model, you you have to read a lot of stuff. Now, if you think about it, a child gets pretty good at language, even though they may only have three, four years of exposure to the real world and some language. So there is a significant saving in terms of sample or information required even in biological systems when compared against, you know, the, the, the large language models that we have. I mean, I haven't seen a small language model yet, so we'll see. So, Hon, what do you actually do at Cortical Labs? Let's talk a little bit about what you do. Uh, what do I do? So I'm the CEO and the founder. Uh, I do everything that isn't being done by other people. So right now we're a very engineering-heavy company, so I do a lot of 
ops. I do a bit of marketing, hence the reason why I'm here. Uh, a bit of PR, you know, that, that kind of stuff. I help set goals and strategy and, and try to do, um, you know, the, the fundraising when required. So that's, I guess, what entrepreneurs really do, right? As a founder, you're just doing everything you need to do. And as you get larger, you know, you, you start to hand over more of the management to other people who are probably better off, you know, dealing with, say, technical or, or management kind of um, stuff. But you're, you're always there, you know, trying to give advice and, 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 you know, align everybody to a common strategic goal. What do you think one of the biggest challenges, like, running the company has been so far? Um, well, this is a very hard technical and scientific problem. Um, so that, that's been a challenge. And, and finding people to help you on this journey is actually really hard um, because there, you need a lot of very highly specialized uh, skill sets. Um, it's also really hard to convince people what you're trying to do because it's so complicated, right? Like I have six layers of how I have to pitch this stuff. Whereas if you know, we were doing a simpler startup, it could be like, well, I'm doing an Uber for X or I'm doing a ChatGPT for Y. That's you know, the simpler way of, of, of pitching an AI startup today. Um, so telling people the story is hard. Um, inspiring and getting people to come along for the journey is hard. But it's really worth it because of, of how interesting and, and unsolved the problem space is. Um, so, yeah, it's a, it's a mixture, really. I think as founders, we usually start off creating the company and everything is, is our idea. All the input, the intellectual input is coming from us. And then as the company grows, you become increasingly disconnected from like the engineering and, and sort of technical problems that arise unless you're Elon and you want to join every single engineering meeting. Do, do you find that that's been the case with you? Like, have you become disconnected from the, from the core engineering problems that the company is trying to solve? Well, I'm, I'm still familiar with the core engineering like challenges and the problems. Um, I'm just not so well versed with the details anymore. So I understand over, you know, overarching what everyone's doing and what are the problems we're facing. Sometimes the solutions that are being worked on, I'm not particularly familiar with it, or the um, you know the results from particular experiments. Um, I, I think it's it's really hard to know everything, and I don't think even Elon knows everything. He he cherry picks his particular interests. Um, you know, a project like the size of SpaceX, I'm sure, has a lot of moving parts, and um, you know he may know a couple of things about maybe the propulsion system but you know there are other things like the maybe like the, the hatch door that might be a technical challenge that he may not be bothered with right because it's less sexy and less interesting but still an important detail so yeah to answer your point i don't know everything anymore uh but i still have a pretty good grasp of what's happening how many employees does cortical labs have i think we're up to 17 now yeah what's your method to hire people that's my quality talent um, method is actually somewhat variable. So sometimes when we do need a need for, say, particular engineering or scientific talent, we put a job ad out. Um, and then, you know, we interview, we bring them in, we gauge their interest and, and, and suitability. Um, other times, you know, we just go headhunting on, on, on LinkedIn. You know, what's this person doing? You know, are they interesting? Can we use them? Can we get them in? Kind of stuff. So it's a mixture, really. Mm. 
I suppose one of the things that we're struggling with at our, at our company is like, how do we find good talent? And then how do we screen good talent when that talent is specialized in things that we're not even specialized in? Yeah. Do you have a, an approach to doing that? Um, no, unfortunately, <laughs> I, I think this is still the holy grail of, of, of startup HR 101, right? Like, how do you, how do you, uh, find the best talent possible, right? And, and, and retain them, um, particularly in areas where you're just not strong and that's the reason why you're hiring, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I think, you know, you try your best, you're not going to get all of them right, but if you can, you know, do say 60, 70%, you know, you're betting above the average. So, um, yeah, I wouldn't get too hung up about like, you know, making bad mistakes. I think every company does. Um, the question more so becomes like, you know, if you've done it, can you identify that early and mitigate, um, you know, issues with, with, you know, the wrong person for the job kind of thing. Yeah. IFS, firefox. That's right. Just mm. SF style. So you mentioned that the, you have different, you know, pitches, you have different ways to pitch the idea, depending on who you're talking to. Mm. How would you go about explaining cortical labs to someone who you may be interviewing versus an investor? Um, so usually with the interview interviewee, we, we usually bring them in if they're, you know, in Melbourne or on site and we say, you know, come in, have a look, um, seeing is believing, uh, it's very hypothetical. And because of the various layers of what we do, it's, it's very abstract. People don't quite get it until they see it. Um, so in order to make sure that somebody really gets what we're doing, we bring them in and we say, this is what we're doing. Have a look. Those are real neurons. That's a computer. That's a chip. They're all connected. And then they usually go, oh, yeah, whatever. And then three days later, they go, oh, wow, I really get it now. There's a really strange, like, lag effect. Latency. Latency that we see. Investors is the same thing as well. Some investors are really good. They can just see it. They're like, cool, I get it now. I don't need to do any further. Sometimes, you know, it doesn't take them. It takes them a while. And, you know, we bring them in. They have a look. And they also have that latent like effect. Like now that I've been thinking about it, it makes a lot of sense. Like, yeah, that's like last week. They're like, yeah, it took a while. So um, I, I think, you know, having, because we are in the physical hardware space and the wetware space as well, having the ability to show um, these things happening um, helps, helps bring this beyond just a sci-fi kind of thing to like, no, this is really happening. I think I'm really curious about how this idea, I mean, we, we sort of know how this idea got its start. You mentioned mm. the paper that you read, and um, I, I know there's a technical co-founder in, involved here as well. Mm. Um, like before you had this lab and before you'd put the neurons on the chips, how did you convince people that this was something that, you, that they should join you on? How did you get that initial start? Hmm. Good question. It was more like, wouldn't this be really cool if we could do this? Right? But did, did people have skepticism in the beginning? Oh, 100%. Everyone was skeptical to begin with. But, you know, there are some people who are curious and, you know, want to see things happen. So, for instance, um, our, our first check came in um, sometime around May 2019 when I pitched the idea to, to Nikki, Nikki Skivak, who's the, the founder at Blackbird Ventures. And it was so wacky, but he said, this is, this is so cyberpunk and cool. I just want to like fund it. So he funded us. <laughs> right. <laughs> and, and I had Andy and I also like, you know, you know I, pre- I had a previous startup. So 
I still have people who I was in connected with and, you know, bought them along with this new journey because they're like, well, what are we going to do now? This looks pretty fun. If you can get money, let's go do it. Okay. Yeah. So who was the like original founding team other than yourself? So it was myself. Um, Andy Kitchen was my CTO. He was from ClinCloud as well. Andrew Doty, he's uh, my chief hardware engineer. He was also from ClinCloud. Um, we had a couple other people from ClinCloud. Uh, but we kind of shrank in size uh, to a core of about four of us for the first, what is it, 18 to 24 months. Mind you, we, we also had the unfortunate event of um, raising and then going to COVID lockdown. So uh, really couldn't do too much. We didn't have enough money. And, um, you know, ex- executive decision was made to, to jettison all PR marketing, all non-essential uh, parts of the business and just focus on using whatever money that we had to do the experimentation required to show without a doubt that these neurons were doing something. How did you determine the initial amount of money you raised? How did we determine it? It wasn't actually determined by us. It was determined by the investors. Sure. They were like, well, here's one mil. And are you happy with the valuation? We're like, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> um, and most of the time it's interesting. Like if you think about like fundraising, so you know, different investors have different strategies. Um, our most recent one was, you know, they set the valuation. They go, okay, here's your valuation. Ask for how much you want. But mind you, the more you ask, the more you dilute yourself. Mm. Fair play. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I, as opposed to the other one, which is ask how, how much do you want? And then I'll figure out what the valuation is. They, they went around it the other way, which is, you know, this is what we think you are worth. Mm. Um, and uh, you can ask for how much you want. So th- this was Blackbird that gave it the valuation? No, this was uh, Horizons Ventures. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So did you, like, I, I want to know sort of your approach to, to, to fundraising. How did you go about your initial fundraise? Was it just an idea? Like, did you have any traction at the time? <laughs> what, no traction. What? So it was just a pitch. It's just a pitch. So you didn't even build anything. <laughs> I didn't even build anything. It was a hunch. So, so did, you use, did you leverage the previous company you were working with? Uh, not really. So, I mean, this is a funny story. Like in 2018, I went up to Hong Kong and I met with uh, the partner at Horizons and I was pitching him this idea. And he's like, yeah, at Horizons, we're known for doing crazy investments, but this is too crazy for us. But good luck. <laughs> but, you know, it's interesting because you never know where the connections you make today will lead you down in the future. And I, one of my advice is always to to try to um, increase the number of random chance encounters that you have, because that's the only thing we, we have any control of in, in, in the world that we have, that we exist in, right? We can only increase those number of random chance encounters with the hope that it actually leads down to more interesting and less uh, predictable paths, because those are the ones that give you the most amount of return, right? High risk, high reward kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So, um, I, I saw, you know, the, the partner in Hong Kong 2018 said, nah, this is too crazy for us. Um, <clears throat> but then in uh, 2021, when we released the preprint and that got some media traction, they, he came across the paper and he's like, I got to get in touch with these guys. So in, 21, in 22, we started talking about, you know, do, you know let's do a deal kind of thing. Uh, and so, you know, something that had written off in 2018 because it didn't go anywhere uh, became a thing in 2022 because we had more traction, we had more evidence and, you know, they had inside early information about what we were working on as opposed to other people who were just learning about it. 
Yeah. So the game is usually, it's a game of information, right? Investments, startups, it's an asymmetrical information game. Um, some people know more, some people know less. The ones with the most amount of knowledge are the ones that are able to execute better. Okay. But this was still post your first fundraise, is that right? Yes. Yeah, so your yeah. preprint was after your first front fundraise. Uh, the preprint, yes, after okay. the first fundraise. Okay. So yeah, the first fundraise was just crazy. Like I just went up to <laughs> Nikki and I was like, I have a hunch. Hey, you you believe that like you know uh, dogs and cats are smart? They all have a brain. You know, it's the same thing I was telling you guys. They all have a brain. They are made from neurons. Wouldn't it be cool if we could just get these things to compute because we have read and write? Yeah. You had a pitch deck though, right? Like surely you had a Oh yeah, I had the backdrop. Pitch. I had a pitch I had a pitch deck, but you know, it was like when you're doing a pitch deck at that point in time, you could put anything in. You could put even a picture of the matrix in and people would be like, Oh, okay, I see. Deep tech. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you're like, I know Kung Fu or oh no, you know, this thing thing that goes to my head or whatever. Like, you know, it, like it, wow, inspiring founder. It could be anything really, but I, I, I think it was more about the idea and you know, it was it was luck. Mm. A lot of a lot of startups, and we're still in the luck phase as well, right? Like in the early days, if you ask any like C-level investor, they always will say that it's 100% luck um, in the early phases. Um, and apart from that, you know, the only thing as a startup founder you can do is not to screw up, right? You, 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 the, the default pathway is A, you know, did the, did the founder screw up? Yes or no? If yes, then that's the end. And no, then you ask, were they lucky or not? Mm. Um, then once they start build, building traction, they have multiple rounds, then it's less about luck and more about you know, execution. But in the early phases, it's kind of like, yeah, how lucky are you? It's like, um, it's like uh, you know, baby turtles when they, when they hatch, it's all about luck, whether one makes it to the ocean kind of thing. But once they make it to the ocean, they're usually you know, a little bit safer and there's more higher chance that they succeed. Interesting. Okay. So you started as a medical student, is that right? Um, well, yes. My, my, my really early journey started as a medical student. What was the intention doing medicine? Um, I, I, I actually wanted to do medicine right from the beginning. And I ended up getting a good ATAR and uh, applied for medicine and got accepted. Straight in? Yeah, uh, as an undergrad. Yeah. So... Um, also, my brother's a surgeon, so you know there was a you know, family thing going on there. Um, uh, but you know, it, it was. Uh, it, I actually think it was a really good piece of training. In fact, I would say the best, one of the best training you can have as an early stage founder is to work as an emergency doctor. Why is that? Because <laughs> you're putting um, out fires all the, the time. Pressure. Yeah, you're putting out fires <laughs> all the time. You're always resource constrained, so you're always having to triage. Right, uh, and there's always something more important that you have to go deal with. There's always a crazy amount of negotiations that need to happen because you have crazy patients all the time. Mm -hmm. So being an emergency doctor, I think it was actually really good training uh, for running an early stage startup. Because, so you finished medicine? Yeah, I finished medicine. And how long did you practice for? I practiced for about two years. Okay. Yeah, uh, but a lot of it was just doing ED rotations because you know that's the generic pathway most people do. Once you've done your 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 med and your surge, everything else is just ED, really. Um, and I, I also worked in some of the, the craziest EDs in in Melbourne. So I was in Frankston, so Frankston Emergency Department on a Friday night. <laughs> we used to call it Frankanistan. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> 
Well, I'm curious, like you finished medical school and a lot of people by then have this sort of sunk cost fallacy. They spent all these years learning medicine, but then you suddenly transition into the startup world. Like how did you justify that to yourself? What was the process that went on in your head? Well, I mean, the thing about it was it never really, I never really intended it to be like transitioning out. It was more of a, I'm going to take a break from med and, you know, it's always there if I want to go back. Except that has turned into a very long and extended break. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, it, it was always a fallback. But, you know, I, I, I don't think it was a sunken cost fallacy, right? A lot of people think that it is. But you learn skills in medicine that are quite transferable. Um, maybe not on paper, right? Like, you know, no one cares if you can, you know, suture up a, a, a laceration when you're, I guess you, that'd be useful when you're doing like a manufacturing startup. But anyway, like no one really cares. But you know the ability, the 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 training you get for like empathy training, you know, talking to patients helps with negotiations and and so forth. So, you know, there are soft skills that you you pick up uh, along the way that are I think universally applicable. I'm I'm curious though because b- before or behind the scenes here, we sort of were discussing this, and you mentioned there were some drawbacks to medicine that you mm. can become very myopic. Uh, very sort of monocular with the way that you view the world and sort of very uni-skilled. How would you sort of contrast these two almost, almost like incompatible views that you've, you've shared? Yeah. So um, the formal training of medicine is very myopic, very uh, um, non-transferable. Right. So, um, and and this is usually the case with uh, specialist training and, and also the university system, right? For instance, it might have changed now, but I, when I was doing med in, in, in this university, I, um, I remember we were exclusively only in the med corner of the university. We would have lectures only amongst ourselves. Well, I guess there were some physios and some, some dentistry people, but I was pretty much stuck with the same group of people for six years. So I didn't really have diversity of like meeting other people in engineering or in business or in arts or whatever, right? It was pretty much just med. So your worldview became very closed up very early about what the rest of the world lo- uh, looked like. And you end up in very interesting sort of microcosms, uh, little fiefdoms of like, you know, oh my God, so-and-so professor is like God. And you're like, well, actually he's not because he's just somebody who works in med and highly respected. But on the on the street, he's just like an average person, a normal person. Mm-hmm. So you get in these very small views of how the world is. And I think what's really interesting is to to be able to look beyond that and realize that there is a really big world out there that is beyond just doing medicine, that is beyond just even medicine in Melbourne, right, or or in Australia, um, that there are huge amounts of opportunities in, in you know applying what we know in medicine to other spaces. Um, so I think you know the training is uh, you know to, is myopic, but you know it, it's very good if you can break out of that. What was the thought process like when you when you had the realization that you know maybe you want to try something different? If you were stuck in this cosm, yep. How so, did you how did you think about? It? Um, I, I, so I was already exposed to this uh, alternative sort of landscape very early on. So. In the Melbourne Medical Program in the early days, um, you would do, I think, two and a half years of preclinical, and then you do a year of research. We call it the AMS, Advanced Medical Science Year. And then you come back and you do your, your clinical years. 
in my uh, advanced medical science year, I was in the U.S. I was at Johns Hopkins. I was already doing something very like non-traditional. So I guess I already had the inkling of doing like you know non-traditional pathways. When I signed up to do research with you know VR and video games for, for pain, depression, and anxiety like research, um, my supervisor at the time was also very entrepreneurial. So he would have ideas about building apps or services and. You know, he would take me on trips to San Francisco, and I was exposed to this whole space of like, wait a minute, what are these people doing? Oh, they're software engineers. Like, how are they getting paid? Oh, people just give them money because they have ideas. I was like, wait a minute, is that even a thing? And yeah, I, I was exposed to this world where, you know, you had people who were willing to take bets on interesting ideas that you could, you know, uh, with with the right amount of skill and storytelling and, and organization, build companies, right, that that could change the world. Um, so that was how I was sort of exposed to this, and I had a slightly different view of the world at that point in time. I already had built contacts uh, during my time there. And I remember one of the early uh, contacts I had, I can't remember who it was, but they were like saying, oh, you got to go to South by Southwest. And I was like, why? Because they were like, that's where all the cool uh, investors and tech people are. So in, what is it, 20, 2014, um, I convinced uh, my, my co-founder at the time, uh, Andrew, who was, um, was also a medical doctor, but he left much earlier and just went to work for Bain as a management consultant um, to join me in this like startup journey. He, so he, he left Bain. Uh, I put medicine on hold. We had a prototype uh, digital stethoscope device that we had built. And we booked a flight, went over to the U.S., and went to South by Southwest um, with the prototype. And we just spoke to a whole bunch of people um, and came back with a bag of money from angel investors. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it, it's, it's kind of incredible. Like, I look back on my journey and how we were able to do that. And, um, and the fact that the, uh, you know, some of the learnings I still have, which is, you know, don't go for any of the day events because all the deals happen at night in the parties. Interesting. So what was your, what was your approach when you, when you went to places like the US? Did you have a methodology to organizing meetings or did you just go there and think, I'm just going to wing it? Um, <laughs> I, I, I've done both. So there's this road in Palo Alto called Sand Hill Road. Um, and that's where all the uh, US VCs are based. So you have like Coastal Ventures, Industries and Horowitz and so forth. I still remember we were like, this was like in the very first startup and we were kind of poor. So we were like, uh, let's save on the Uber. So we walked up Sand Hill Road and never again, because it's quite a steep hill and you get there and you're hot and you're sweaty and you, you just can't focus. So, you know, we, we literally one point just went door knocking. Hey, we're these Australian guys with an idea for this thing. Can you fund us? And it turned out that that wasn't the best way of getting things done. Mm. A better way was to get introductions, you know, uh, warm introductions were always better than cold. And, and you know, you, you would then try to organize at a time and, you know, you would get ref uh, tips from friends and, you know, people who had done this thing for longer about what you should and shouldn't say in your deck and your, your pitch kind of thing, um, how you structure it and organize it. Because, you know, if you think about it, if you, if you take the perspective of like a science person, you're like, oh, the more information, the better. So I'm going to cram 30 slides in with all this detail. When in fact, no one in 
the investment space has the ability to think about all of that stuff and you're actually doing yourself this service. So they always, and it's, it's, a, it's a fair point, always say keep your decks to 10 slides, you know, max, uh, size 24, 30 point font and uh, sell the story. Tell the story, not the details. The details can be figured out later on once you've convinced somebody that this is a story that they, they're, they're invested in. Absolutely. So this sort of trip up Sandy Hill, was this uh, for the Stethoscope startup or for Cortical Labs? Oh, for the Stethoscope startup. I'm, I'm never doing that one again. Okay. <laughs> so, but, but, but you did end up coming back to Australia with a bunch of money. Yes. For the Stethoscope startup. Yes. And I'm curious, like you're, you were an Australian company. Were yep. you registered? Like so how we, did they give you this money? So we were an Australian company, but then, you know, through contacts and, you know, it's funny, you just people you meet and you reach out to, they advised us to flip to the US. So we flipped the company to 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 the Del to a Delaware C Corp and you know turned the Australian subsidiary company to a subsidiary. <clears throat> so once you have a Delaware C Corp, you know, you can take money from anywhere really, because everyone knows what the rules are as a C Corp. Um, and uh, we essentially took the the angel investment money to build up more prototypes um, and I think it was put to a Kickstarter or Indiegogo. I can't remember one of those things. And so we did a, a Kickstarter slash Indiegogo thing. And that caught the attention of some really big name investors. So we had Tencent and Ping On Ventures. And this was in 2014, 2015, who were like, this is really cool. Here's $5 million. Go make it happen. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, we raised $5 million US million on, I think it was like an uncapped convertible note. It was kind of crazy. And... Uh, yeah, we took the money, we built product, we got it FDA C certified factory line in China. Uh, we we're making devices and software and back end. Um, yeah, uh, you know, the, the only problem is that when you take venture capital money, you always have to grow and grow fast. And, um, you know, we made the mistake of taking too much too early. Um, and so we, in order to raise the next round, we always had to, you know, I, I call it chasing the dragon. We had to, you know, keep going for a larger customer. So <clears throat> we started out with a B2C deal with Best Buy and I can't remember who else. Anyway, Amazon. And we were selling devices, but not enough. So we tried going to a B2B um, scenario. We're selling to employee health programs. This is all in the US. And, you know, we, th that wasn't like, you know, giving us enough um, revenue. So we decided to put our eggs in one basket. And, you know, instead of hunting rabbits and deer, we thought we'll go and hunt the elephant which was the VA. So we had partnered up with um, a subsidiary from Intel where we had done a deal to sell a stethoscope and thermometer along with something else. I can't remember what it was, like a kit to the VA. And the VA had placed, I think, about a 10,000 unit order. But this was in 2016. And what happened in December 2016? Donald Trump gets elected. And, you know, his threat of tearing up Obamacare really shook the whole landscape because... You know, the, the devices that we were going to sell were part of a trial program for an employee health. So if it was part of the uh, discretionary expenditure fund, fund for the VA, mm -hmm. and, you know, the last thing you want to do when you don't know where the money is coming from is to spend your discretionary expenditure fund. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, we, we spent a lot of time waiting, waiting, and, you know, the point we decided was not worth waiting because we're just burning cash. Mm -hmm. And so we decided to just close up, and that was the bookend of uh, that startup. Wow. It's an awesome story. It is. Yeah, it's like the scene from Silicon Valley where they're in the uh, office and they're selling off the furniture. 
Been there, done that. <laughs> wow. I love it. So this, this digital stethoscope, um, w- was it something that like I could have bought instead of a, a cardio pour yeah. from Littman? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 100%. And it's, it's dead because of Trump. Well, kind of, yeah. <laughs> well, we didn't have enough money to keep it going, and it was meant to be more of a mass consumer device rather than a, a di- diagnostic system. This was, it was quite interesting, actually, because what we, we also did some work with the, um, the women's hospital, um, and we, we actually developed a pretty interesting algorithm where um, one, of the, one of the problems that the neonatologists face over there is um, needing to obtain heart rate within the first minute of life as a determinant of whether you aggressively resuscitate uh, a neonate or not. And neonates, as you know, are peripherally, peripherally shut down, so you can't do pulse oximetry. And they're also wet, so ECGs don't stick very well. Um, and so, uh, you know, the idea was, could we use a stethoscope that could count the, the oscillatory beats to figure out what the, the heart rate was? And actually, a trial was done, and it was quite successful. I don't know what happened. I got to go full out one day, um, where our device was placed on these newborns, and we were able to pick up like very accurate heart rate within that first minute of life. Mm. Um, but yeah, you know, it's, it wasn't enough to cover the bills. Fascinating. So, what did it look like when you had to close shop? Like, you had already spent a certain amount of money. Yeah, you had was, investors who were probably like, it was it was tough. Deal? It was tough. Like one of the lowest points. Uh, in my career, mm. um, you know, you uh, it's demoralizing because, you know, we also had raised too much money. So we had a, like a million dollars left in the bank and we had we didn't have enough to do a new product line. We couldn't do any more hardware. Um, we, we had a difficulty, you know, trying to figure out what to do. Some of the investors didn't want our money back because they had written it off already. So we were just a zombie company for a long while. People would come in, they would just watch some YouTube and then they would clock out kind of thing. <laughs> <laughs> and and Sad. yeah, we were rudderless for a long time. And actually, that was one of the worst parts. I was like, I, I had much rather we just ran out of money and we just closed up naturally and say, we're, ban- we're bankrupt, we're out of money, bye. Yeah. As opposed to just trying to like struggle and figure it out. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's one of the dangers of raising too much money. A lot of people say you can never raise too much money. I say bullshit. You can always raise more than you need. Um, and that becomes a dangerous thing because you become unfocused. You, you also have the problem of um, you know, having uh, very high expectations for your next round. Um, and, um, you know, you, you run into the, yeah, a lot of problems when you raise too much too quickly. So um, that, was, that was quite a low point, but, you know, uh, it does, it's a learning experience and you get better, you learn a bit more humility, a bit more experience when it comes from that. Um, yeah. Lesson for any founders watching, if you get an email from Tencent offering you $5 million reply, <laughs> we'll actually, take one. I just want 1.5. We'll take 1.5. I'd like to come back to something you said earlier on in the conversation about sort of increasing your surface area for serendipity. Hmm. Obviously, you, you are a strategic person, and I'm sure that you thought relatively deeply about how to position yourself in your life to... I guess, anticipate and take advantage of the trends that were taking place and to you know, become a, a CEO of a successful company. What did you do when you were young that you think was the most high yield to get you to where you are now? Um, I think it was when I taught myself how to code. Um, 
not so important now because you got ChatGPT to do all your coding for you. But like in the early days, um, being able to code for something um, by yourself was huge, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and in many cases, if you think about what a startup is, a startup is technically a cult. <laughs> and uh, in order for, uh, for you to attract cult members, you've got to perform some miracles. So being able to code and build like early MVP uh, prototypes was a huge boon because I could build something and go, guys, look, it works. Now please come help me, like build a real product kind of stuff. Um, and I, I think that was, you know, one of the, one of the best uh, use of, of time when I was, um, you know, in high school, um, just learning how to code, um, understanding how systems are built and put together and being able to communicate to engineers and say, guys, you know, it's not impossible. I built the thing. I just need you to help me build more of this stuff. It's much stronger when you do that when you're looking for, you know, engineers to join you because engineers are usually quite skeptical people. Um, but if they see, you know, you have some technical chops and you're able to, like, execute as well, it becomes more attractive for them to work together with you. When did you actually do this? Like, was it during your medical degree, before, after? So, uh, I, well, I, I, I've been co- I was coding ever since I was, like, what, 14 mm. in high school. Um, and then I had a pause because, you know, you had to do year 12 and all that stuff. But I picked it back up again in, and it's interesting, like the, the story arc, because w- when I was in high school, I was one of those weird kids with a Mac and uh, everyone else was using Windows. There weren't enough apps. So I had to teach myself how to code. Now, back in the old days, the Mac was coded in a very weird language called Objective-C. And very few people knew that. Um, now, we fast forward to 2006 or seven, first year of med school. Uh, the iPhone came out. And I was like, oh, this is so cool. You know, I got a mate to like ship it over from the US and I jailbroke it and activated it. And then there was also an underground community of people mucking around with the iPhone and building apps. And I somehow got into it and I looked at it and said, wait a minute, these apps are built using Objective-C. I know this language because I had to do it for my Mac. Mm. So I started building apps when I was in, in med school. Um, and that was a bit of a side hustle. So <laughs> I was building apps in the early days and, you know, doing some consulting work and stuff like that. This was prior to Swift. This is, yeah, prior to Swift. Yeah. Okay. Fascinating. Absolutely. It's almost synonymous with, you know, what's happening now with OpenAI. Yeah. It looks like they're trying to create a little bit of a, you know, app store themselves. So a lot of people will transfer their skills into that space. 100%. Except now it's more about, you know, um, data. Data, yeah, pre-training and, and so forth. Yeah. Mm. Mm. Well, I'd, I'd love to know a little bit more about your childhood as yeah. well. Um, you know, when I was a kid, I had some eccentric habits and uh, I'm sure Oliver also has his own eccentric habits. What, what were the things that you think made you different as a kid hmm. when you were in school or... Well, yeah, what was like different about you or your interests that um, maybe wasn't sort of seen in your classmates? Um, I think I had a very actually typical childhood. Um, I, I didn't have any too, anything too eccentric. Mm-hmm. I did have the um, propensity to break things because I would try to disassemble them and put them back again. So I guess I was trying to be a early, natural early born engineer. Um, I remember getting into a lot of trouble. Uh, cracking open the, the family computer and breaking it. 
<laughs> but you know the benefit is you you got to learn um mm. what what went wrong and how to fix it um and so i think that was one of the one of the early traits you know that 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 helped me you know go down this path did you ever experience pressure at all by your parents or family members 100% i'm asian <laughs> <laughs> there's always pressure you know it's uh the, the pressure to succeed um to live up to expectations, that kind of stuff. So, yeah, I remember like year 12, I was, that was one of the most uh, highly stressful years. Um, I mean, because like, I, I don't know, I just had my mind, I wanted to get a med. But to get into med, you needed like an eight out of 99 and above. Um, and so I worked really hard to try and get that. Um, and I remember when the results came out, it's, uh, it was like a really nice, uh, slightly overcast day 24 degrees and i got my results i felt really happy with it so i went to the botanic gardens and i just like lay down on the lawn and had a nap nice <laughs> yeah so when you you know finished medical school your parents would have been really proud of you you were practicing as a doctor and yep. then you were like uh, i'm gonna try something new yeah what was your parents reaction to that decision? oh uh near this this omen <laughs> <laughs> they're like what are you doing what you know you can't do this kind of stuff I'm like well i'm going now bye how did you deal with it well, okay, it wasn't that bad. It was more of like, are you sure about it? And as like, yeah, you know, don't worry. There's always a fallback, which I can always co- go back to, kind of thing. Mm. So they weren't. They weren't. Fu- I wouldn't say fully supportive, but they weren't like freaking out as well because mm. I had I had finished right because I, I I experienced actually early on. I was like, hey, you know, I I don't know if I want to go all the way to the end. And my dad actually gave me some really good advice, which he said, you can always learn how to code, right? You just get a book and just teach yourself. You can't learn to do med because you need to be in a hospital. You need to see patients. You need cadavers to cut up. You need, you know, physical things. Um, so I stuck around with it and, and finished and, and worked just a bit. So they, they, there was less pressure, I think, because they were like, well, we've done our best. You have some professional degree in training. Um, worst case scenario, you just go back and, and intern or re- be a resident kind of thing. Um, so that was it. But, you know. One th- one one trick is if you're a founder and you're from an Asian background, your parents are disappointed. Just do some PR. You know, once they see some newspaper stuff, they're like, "Oh, you're actually doing really That's well." Wow, so you're true. famous. You're famous. <laughs> exactly. That's the hack. Incredible. Yeah. And you're like, well, I still have to pay the money anyway for the PR to get like the marketing out there. So, <laughs> you know, it's a it's a win win situation. That's so true. Yeah, I I, I have a, a very similar story of um, when I got my ATAR results. I remember the university sort of called me yep. um, and my, my mom was in tears. And then now with, you know, I, I'm planning on stepping aside <laughs> from medical school and it's very much the, the same thing. But when they found out that we got, we were, we had an interview scheduled to Forbes, they changed their mind. Yeah, they were like, oh, wow. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's, it's kind of cool. Exactly. Because <laughs> they get to go, you know, it's, I think it's a lot of it is about how are they going to explain to their friends what has happened? Exactly. Right. Yeah. My kid goes to this and this and yeah. yeah. What does your kid do? Uh, never mind that he's on Forbes. <laughs> and they're like, oh, it must be doing really well. Then yes, yeah, it's an interesting mentality. Mm. It's like a protective you know, reaction from the parents. They just want what's best. Yeah, they're just worried. It, you know, it definitely is the case. And I, I think a lot of the times, even though they're supportive, they mostly just don't understand what we're doing. Mm. My parents have no idea what I'm doing. As far as they are concerned, they were like, well, Forbes wrote about it, so it must be important. Um, <laughs> and I've tried to explain them many times. They're not from a scientific background, so it just goes right over their heads. Mm. Um, but, you know, they're supportive, and, um, you know, I think that, that's, that's key. Um, 
you always have a support base. Well, I think, yeah, it absolutely is key. I feel, I feel the same way to some degree. Like my dad is a tradie, mm. so he didn't have a formal education per se. But, you know, when I speak about some of the things I do in the mm. lab during my PhD or mm. even with the company, with Ben, he just goes, I believe in you. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I don't know what you're doing, but yeah, it must be cool. Yeah. yeah. I suppose I'm really curious about uh, if if you had like a, a vision mm. growing up, um, you know, you, you may not have had this idea or this sort of iteration of the idea, but mm. was there like some guiding principle of, you know, I want to transform this industry or I want to make as much money as possible? What was a driving sort of force? As a kid. Or as a kid and, and sort of... In oh, your- I guess as a kid, everyone just wants to drive a Lambo or something like that, right? <laughs> so it's always like, hey, wouldn't it be cool if I was rich? And then as you get older, you're like, yeah, money is nice, but it's not the most important thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually, you know, you come around it and you're like, actually, the more important thing, at least for me now, and, and maybe it's just, you know, getting older and, and just observing, like, stuff, is that what's more important is actually legacy rather than money, right? Um, legacy that, you know, I remember one of, one of our collaborators, Professor Hartung from, from Johns Hopkins, was saying that it's not every day you get to wake up and invent a new field of science. And I was like, you know what? You're right. right? We, my, my team, particularly Brett, you know, and the, the research team have invented a new field of science. And it's not every day we get to do it. And so I feel very privileged and I'm very, you know, like uh, grateful to be part of this, this journey. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, the, the greatest outcome for this, I think, is, is the legacy, right? Being able to say, I made this. Everyone, a lot of people are using it, and you know this is uh, this has changed the world, kind of thing. Mm. Mm. That's an interesting way to think about it, for sure. Reminds me of that sort of uh, the recent uh, OpenAI Dev Day, where Sam just got up very casually, was like, said, yeah, "Yeah, so yeah. we made this thing, and like people are using it." And He's like, "Yeah, like I'm gonna and... watch this. I'm gonna build. I'm gonna build a GPT. <laughs> yeah, whatever. Yeah, exactly. all good." So, what do you see in the next five years? What do you perceive? happen uh you know it's a great question i it's very hard to say um it's a chaotic system so the further out you get the more random more stochastic it looks like um uh, but i can say what i would like to see um is more of our work you know being completed looking at how we can correlate the um uh, disease modeling stuff so you know, I've had parents reach out to me with, you know, cases of kids with, you know, microdeletions in their chromosomes, or they've had kids with, you know, uh, Liz and Kefali and all these things who are like, uh, I don't know if you can help me, but, you know, I would re- really wish that your system could, you know, be used to find treatments for my kid's condition. Um, a lot of heart-wrenching stories. Um, carers with, pa- with, with parents with dementia who like, it's maybe a bit too late, but I hope that this technology can be used to, 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 you know, either A, find a drug, or B, understand better the, the disease state. Um, so I really hope in the next five years we're able to progress that a bit further. There is now momentum in the U.S. with Congress passing the um, FDA Modernization Act, where we are now starting to look at alternatives to animal testing in the preclinical um, uh, stage. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, this gives us an opportunity to start thinking about, can we start using organoids for, for this kind of work? And then if that's the case, what are the, what are the large scale studies that we have to start thinking about where we can start, you know, doing multi-center trials and we can get enough data and, and statistical power to say, look, there is a correlation between what happens in a donor dish 
um, and the the donor itself. Um, and you know, once we can prove that, I think that's going to change um, the way we practice medicine significantly. Mm. Is that the most exciting aspect of the future of cortical labs to you? Like the it's the one that we have the most amount of control. Mm. The other one that's really exciting that we have really not much control of is the cloud computing aspect of things, where we are building tooling, you know, to program these neurons in JavaScript and Python and putting it out there. So this hopefully will be launched sometime next year. Uh, we have no idea what people are going to be building on it or where they'll take it or if it's going to do anything. Mm. Um, but it could be really cool. Like, you know, it's like, who knew what people were going to do with ChatGPT when it came out? Wow. So, so you're almost building like an Azure, but for biological computing. Correct. That's so fascinating. You just got a bunch of like brains instead of GPU clusters. So Pretty much. So yeah. the way it would work is you would say, um, you know, I'm very keen to do some experimentation. I have some ideas how these things could work. I am going to rent. I'm going to adopt the cell culture. So you let us know which kind of what type of cells you want. We grow them for you. And then once they're matured within usually about two to six weeks, we say, okay, it's ready to go. Give us your code. We'll run it for you. And we'll run the experiments and we'll give you the data back. Mm. But in the meantime, we're looking after your cells. Mm. And, you know, you get something that's really cool, right? So, you know, share it around, publish your work, build a startup, who knows. Do you think that biological computing is a prerequisite for AGI? I think it is for some types of AGI. What types of AGI? The ones that are self-sustaining, i.e., if you think about it, like most of the current systems, unless they feed themselves back, are functions. F of x equals y, right? You don't give it an x, you don't get a y, unless you feed y back to itself. But then you end up with a loop that doesn't really make any sense. Um, biological systems don't actually, we don't function like a, like a mathematical function. We're just here. We input, we action. Mm. Um, so I think it's quite a prerequisite, alongside with embodiment, to actually get to this kind of AGI that, we're kind of familiar with. That's kind of the reason why people, some people say that ChatGPT is AGI, but a lot of people disagree because it lacks the embodiment. It lacks the, the ability to just respond, right? Because you, ha you have to prompt it to get a response back. Mm. So you mentioned, you know, you've been to the US many times. Do you see yourself moving there in the future? Um, potentially. Uh, it's really up to the investors, really. So a lot of the times investors will make a uh, prerequisite for the, you know, CEO to be on site, you know, where it's easy for them to, to, to get a hold of. Um, and, uh, you know, scalability wise, maybe we might need um, talent that we may not be able to find in Australia. Mm -hmm. um, overseas in, in the US, the UK, you know, Asia, wherever. So it, it's hard to say, I'd like to stay here, but you can never tell. I mean, we, we didn't even cover this, but the actual facility that you work in, mm. what does that look like? Is it a lab? Yeah, it's a lab. It's down in Brunswick, actually. So it's a PC2 laboratory. Um, um, we grow the stem cells there. Uh, we plate the neurons um, and we keep them alive. So we actually have a, we have a, a, a set of neurons that have been growing since all, actually they've been around for much longer than August, but they, they, were, they were capped and put in the perfusion circuit system since August, so we're like August, September, October, November, so four months um, outside of an incubator, outside of a human body, and it's just being perfused with cell culture media using our system, and they're still alive, and they're actually doing pretty well. So yeah, um, you know, that's what a laboratory looks like, um, kind of the same that you would get in you know university laboratory kind of thing. Do you feel like though there's only a, there's a certain scale of ambition 
that's only possible in places like San Francisco that you can't get in Melbourne, that if you have like really ambitious ideas, you almost have to move to the US or at least pitch to the US or, but yeah, what are your thoughts on, on that? Um, I think actually there's an an antithesis to that in the, in San Francisco right now, anything that's too high gets outright, like, you know, dismissed as, 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 as fake. It's the Theranos effect. Anyone who's doing anything high is now, you know, looked at as a fraud. Um, and, and so I, I don't know if it actually really makes much of a difference if you're in, in, in San Francisco or not. Um, in many cases, like, you know, Neuralink is actually based in, in Texas, I think, and Synchron are based in New York. So, you know, I, I'd say that, you know, deep tech is actually not focused that much on San Francisco. There's a lot of good deep tech stuff there. Um, but, you know, I don't think it's a prerequisite that you have to be in the Bay Area to, to succeed. In fact, it actually is, 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 you know, an equal chance if you're outside as well, because you don't have to fight so hard for talent um, and, and compete against big tech. Right. Very true. Shall we move on? Let's move on. So we want to have a bit of fun now, yep. essentially, you know, speed things up a little bit. We go uh -huh. through what's called the quick fire round, mm -hmm. where we ask you a series of questions that were generated by AI. Okay. Your task is to just respond All right. intuitively to what you, you know, first thing that comes to mind. Okay. So first question, what is your favorite way to chill? Uh, Netflix. What's your favorite cuisine or restaurant? Uh, Japanese. If you had to go back 100 years, what would your job be? Uh, the Lord Chamberlain. I wiped the king's ass. <laughs> <laughs> Why? Because that's so. That's how you get the most amount of power influence. Yes, me Lord. Yes. Now I have this problem. You know. Oh yes, very well. Okay, no problems then. We'll take care of that. While you wipe it to the, the ass, the royal ass. <laughs> oh, that's like the most fascinating way anyone could have answered that question. Um, if you had to choose one animal to be your battle companion, which animal would it be? The honey badger. Why? Because he's unbeatable. No fucks given. <laughs> Oops, not necessarily to say that. That's yeah, okay. <laughs> What's your favorite snack? Uh, Doritos. If you had to teach a primary school class on one thing, what would you teach and why? Uh, coding. I would teach in Python because it's very useful. <laughs> nice. If you could time travel, would you go into the past or the future? Um, I go back in the past. Why? So that I can get a lottery. Eh. You know, we, we know that. <laughs> back to the future disproved it, but I get a lottery ticket. What would you do with the money? Uh, don't know. Cortical labs. Yeah, <laughs> I'd just be a VC and I'd just find other people. Yeah, that's right. Maybe one more. What's one subject you would like to learn more about? Um, one subject I would love to learn more. Maths. Mm. Right. There's always so much and there's not enough that you can learn. I have a friend of mine that's doing maths and all he does is maths. He lost his girlfriend because he would choose, his, <laughs> choose maths over his girlfriend. There's a particular type of character and personality that goes down that path. Oh man, the math department, so crazy. But, but to be honest, like having, you know, having conversations with mathematicians is, is quite interesting. Yes. Even if you don't understand the concepts, just to see someone, you know, mm -hmm. geek out like that. Yep. It's just, it just it's a different different type of human absolutely do we have a question from the last question? i can't remember what the question was 
<laughs> Let's give you a, a new question. An intellectual question. All right. What do you think you want your legacy to be? Um, I would love the legacy to be that I created a startup that gave birth to many other startups. Mm. Right. I want to be the anti-open AI. I am not going to compete against smaller startups building on our technology. Um, I, I think they made a mistake with, with you know, their, their, app, their app strategy um, because you have to be invested in it. You need to know how you're going to make it work. And, um, you know, at least for our technology, because it's so new and it's so, so young, um, we, we got to give everyone who builds on, on our system the best shot possible at succeeding. So, yeah, I would really hope that, you know, the legacy would be that we'd get, you know, 10 startups. Maybe they become not startups anymore in the future. And, um, you know, we would have a whole bunch of technologies built using what we discovered in our lab, you know, four years ago. I think the brilliance of that is that you're well on your way. It seems, at least. I hope yeah. so. <laughs> so, awesome job with that. Thank so, you. Having said that, passing on the torch, what is a question that you want to leave on the Orange Podcast for the next guest? I think the, uh, the, the question would be, think about what are the applications that could benefit from real time? So, uh, operating with uh, sort of data streaming in at a constant you know, clock speed like what we have right now um that that needs low energy think about it and then reach out to us when the system is ready and uh we would love to see what you can build on top of it brilliant fascinating well this has been the orange podcast gladly sponsored by melbourne connect co-working uh happy to have you on and thank you for joining us thanks for having me now we talk a lot about business and entrepreneurship, but to build the future, you need people and a place to build from. Discover the perfect workspace for collaboration and productivity. Melbourne Connect Coworking is offering our viewers an exclusive 25% discount on 12-month memberships. Quote Orange when you submit your inquiry. Links are available in the description now.